From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winston. And today, we'll be taking a look at WWF All-Star Wrestling from March 7th, 1981. And no, we're not going surfing, even though that little theme music kind of makes me feel like I should be riding a wave in the Pacific Ocean or something. I feel like Don Morocco would have really fit in on that opening intro. But he's not there. It's mostly Andre the Giant and then a, a dusting of Bob Backlund there at the end. Because those are your two top baby faces in the promotion here in the late winter, early spring of 1981. And this is actually the first show from that year that I've been doing. So close that loop. This would be the 19th different year that has been covered in 38 episodes of Greetings from Allentown. And they're all from the range of 1980 to 1999. And the only one I have left is 1995, a year that's somewhat notorious for not being the most interesting in North American wrestling, at least. So I'm pretty sure I'll get to that shortly because I have a few things on the list from 95 that I certainly want to talk about. Now, before I go any further, I want to get in the plugs real quick here. You can reach the show via email, greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Facebook, facebook.com slash greetingsfromallentown, and send a friend request, which I kind of do a manual making sure that this is a real person sort of thing and make sure that they do listen to the show. So, you know, just, just so you know, I, I kind of read through people's feeds to make sure that, you know, they're on the up and up. I kind of am my own spam filter there. And speaking of spam, of course, there's always Twitter, at GF Allentown Pod. Give that a follow, and give a follow to the Pro Wrestling Only feed, either on SoundCloud, iTunes, whatever your podcatcher device is, in association with the Place to Be Nation, because that's probably where you are listening to this show. And I have to get in all my plugs for that, too. If you do an Amazon shopping, go to placetobenation.com slash Amazon. And you want to check out from a couple of days before this show dropped, the Place to Be podcast had a Halloween special. I know that this is November 2nd, so it's 363 days until the next Halloween. But I'm sure you still have some candy left that you're working your way through. I know that I will because I live at the top of a giant hill and people don't want to come up to my house for trick-or-treating. But we have to buy the big bag anyway. And, you know, I end up eating most of it over the next two weeks. And luckily, there's some Skittles, some Starburst in there. And, yeah, anyway, there's a Halloween special on the Place to Be podcast. And I am scheduled to appear, and I can only assume that I did. (laughs) It's not, I'm not saying that because, you know, I, I am taping this on a Sunday and my bit on there will be recorded tomorrow on Monday. So we shall see how that goes. 
I should also mention there's an episode of Strong Style Sorry. Uh, it came out on the Pro Wrestling Only Field earlier in the week. And I mentioned that because one of the guys from that show corrected me that Scott Norton is actually a two-time IWGP champion. So you can imagine just how jealous Hulk Hogan was of Scott Norton winning the greatest belt in all of wrestling or whatever Hogan said on two separate occasions. It only really kind of strengthened my theory. So go give that show a listen to learn more about Japanese wrestling, in particular New Japan Pro Wrestling, and all the other shows that I give a shout out to our Vantage Point podcast, which has moved on from the place to be family, but on on good terms. So I can still mention them here and all all the other shows, too numerous to name. I was sad to see that the Letters from Center Stage podcast is going on a longer hiatus than anticipated. And I wish JT and Allen all the best there, particularly Allen, as I am rooting for his campaign to get Big Daddy into Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. And there are also podcasts on that that I know Chris Zellner and Dylan Hales have recorded regarding some of the candidates on the ballot, some really good discussion. When those two guys get together and I listen to them, I always learn something, so do check that out. It's called the Premier Podcast Brand. I almost called it the Premier Broadcast Brand, but that would be silly of me. So all of that, just keep all of that in mind. And yes, give me a subscription on iTunes and rate and review and all all that other good stuff. So, we're here in 1981, and this is, of course, second oldest show that I've covered to date, and it's actually kind of interesting. I don't dwell too much on the statistics in terms of listeners for my show, although I do kind of look at it to get a gauge of what people are most interested in, and the 14th episode that I did, which was actually just before I joined the Pro Wrestling Only feed at episode 16, was on the 1980 Championship Wrestling, which featured the Larry Zbysko turn on Bruno San Martino. And that is actually the least listened to show that I've had. I don't know if it's because it is 1980, because it's older, or people might not know what that's about. I mean, it's the logo of my show is from that particular episode. So it's, you know, some trepidation because some people have a fear of the pre-1984 WWF as being dry and boring. And much of it was in terms of the week-to-week TV. There were not a lot of hot angles being done. But when they would do angles, they would make them count a lot of times with Bruno and Larry or even with a misfire like I covered in episode 7 with superstar Billy Graham trying to destroy the world title belt and struggling mightily. But there are a few points that I want to make about 1981 WWF, which I have to admit has been covered ably by the Titans of Wrestling podcast. And they did, you know, 77 episodes and a lot of them were on the 1981 WWF. I think they probably did at least three or four or five or even more than that. And of course, they're uh, three quarters of that show is now hosting the show Worldcast, which I should also mention because it is the golden palace of wrestling podcasts, only good. I say that because if you recall in the early 90s, the Golden Girls 
were on the air, they were rocking and rolling, strutting and strolling, as Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels would say. And then B. Arthur decides to leave. And B. Arthur, in this case, is actually Parv, who is now out on his Legends deal, who only makes occasional appearances. So the other three will go on to this Golden Palace podcast, which is world-class championship wrestling. And I've already decided that Johnny Sorrow, of course, is uh, the Estelle Getty character. Sophia. Pete is Blanche Devereaux because his name is Pete, which means he's the most sexual out of all of them. And then, of course, there is Kelly Nelson, who is Rose because he's from the North Country. And the name Nelson is something that you could have seen in St. Olaf, Minnesota. Although in, in the Golden Girls, it was a lot more complicated names that they would do for comedic bits. Anywho, I kind of feel like I kind of lost track here. There's almost no 1981 WWF TV out there on YouTube. So to find one, I kind of had to act fast as somebody had posted this show months and months ago, but they did it in kind of a weird content dump where they were doing such a thing that I knew was going to get their account suspended or whatever. And I knew what was going to be on this episode. So I pulled it down and I was saving it for an occasion just like this. So here we are in All-Star Wrestling. And yes, I could have done the Championship Wrestling episode from March 7th, which also features the Cobra Clutch Challenge angle with Sergeant Slaughter and Pat Patterson. But I feel like I have not done an episode of All-Star Wrestling. It's got a different theme song. It's got a different feel. You don't have Joe McHugh there at the beginning. Instead, you have Gary Michael Capetta instead which is so fun to see him 10 years ahead of his WCW heyday where he was constantly on the telephone at ringside as chronicled in the Where Where the Big Boys Play podcast. So it's like mildly different feel. Less stuff happened in Hamburg. And in fact, most of the things on this show were not even done at the Hamburg tapings. The Angelo Mosca match was taped months ago in Allentown. The Cobra Clutch Challenge was also in Allentown at the tapings the day before the Hamburg tapings, but there's only the two matches from Hamburg on this show. It's S.D. Jones versus The Hangman and Yoshiaki Yatsu versus Frank Savage in a match where if I said that it was those two participants, you would think it was in New Japan or anywhere else, but no, it is actually here. 81 WWF because you don't get to see the week-to-week TV like a year like 84 or 87. You kind of have to watch the house shows, which there's more of that out there. And I've watched the March 1981 house show from Madison Square Garden, which, you know, the the wrestling itself can be a little plotting at times, but there's a, a sneaky good SD Jones-Johnny Rods match thrown in there, which was really kind of fun. Two guys that are kind of known as equals in retrospect, but S.D. Jones in 1981 was a kind of a different story, which I'll get to when I get to the opening match. At the top of the card, there was some fun things going on. Bob Backlund at the beginning of the year was in a feud with Stan Hansen, and he went through this in his book where Hansen was a real pain in the ass to deal with, with The Office and all that, where he was only going to get two matches with Backlund instead of three, 
at MSG, but he worked his way into a third match, which is on the network. It's in the April 1981 MSG show, which they truncated down to about 56 minutes for whatever reason. And Backlund just eats Hansen alive in a cage match that only runs about nine minutes, but it's about as close to a squash as you would see in that kind of situation. Later in the year, you'd have Andre the Giants feud with Killer Khan, which Andre broke his ankle getting out of bed, and that's where he started to have the health problems that would plague him for the rest of his life, really. I mean, in terms of physical ailments, which was blamed on a Killer Khan knee drop to Andre's leg, saying that he broke his leg. And Khan is actually on this show in kind of a promo with his manager, Classy Freddie Blassie which is a really weird interlude in the middle of this show. And then, of course, there is Sergeant Slaughter and Pat Patterson. And Patterson is one of the announcers on here. He is the color guy with Vince McMahon on All-Star and Championship Wrestling. And it's kind of a weird thing. They're, they're not thought of as any kind of special duo as announcers. And they're not great for whatever reason. I like Bruno and his pairing with with Vince because he would actually say stuff when he got into the three-man booth Bruno really wasn't talking anymore I do like the Vince and Pat team from one perspective and you can tell that the two of them are very close friends and that they're tight so they have kind of a chemistry from that perspective of just two friends watching wrestling together and calling the action And they would bust each other's balls from time to time if you watch enough of the TV. And Patterson would do television up through the end of 1983 when Gene Okerlund comes in. And I don't like the McMahon-Okerlund team when they were together for the first six months or so of 1984. They, They lacked the same chemistry that Vince and Pat did. But occasionally Pat would come out of the broadcast booth and he would do... An angle, like with an Ivan Koloff, although that would be in 1983. But in 1981, there are two very memorable angles. The one here with Sergeant Slaughter that really kicks into high gear on this show. And one later in 1981 with Angelo Mosca involving a pitcher of water that he hits Patterson over the head with. And that... That actually was more towards the end of 1981, and Mosker is actually on this show, so I'll talk about his run through the course of 1981 when we get to that. I should also mention, if you've, if you've listened to all of my shows, since around episode 11, I have put in the little clip at the beginning where Vince, in some form, says, Discretionary viewer participation is suggested for the following professional wrestling exhibition. All of those, and that was something I sought out to find to add into the intro, and you probably noticed that I added a little other thing to the intro just for this week because I was sort of feeling that, that Vince would say that in the intro only in 1981. I can't find a clean version of that from other years. I, I guess he would say it in like up through 1983, but uh, 81 was the year he would say that, and I could get clean versions. Anyway, back to... You know, Patterson has the angle with Sergeant Slaughter. And Slaughter from 1980 to 1984 is just a revelation in 
That that guy, uh, <laughs> it's it's unbelievable to watch him in a number of different settings because he's a big guy who bumps. He's incredibly versatile. You can put him in there with Andre the Giant, and he did face Andre on that MSG House show in March of 1981. And it's a he's a plausible opponent based on his size. He'll bump for Andre and get a pretty good match out of it. The classics that he had with Patterson are well documented, but he's also one of Bob Backlund's very best opponents. And Backlund admits as such in his 2015 book, which I've chronicled on my blog, section309.com, although uh, I should let you in that I'm probably going to be phasing out the blog soon because I have not been posting to it very often, and it's up for renewal, I think, at the end of November. I've had it up for two years. The first year I was posting quite a bit, and ever since I started the podcast, not so much. But Sergeant Slaughter in 1981 is uh, truly a joy to behold. So they don't really miss at that time. You have Larry Zabisco, who was the hottest heel in 1980, along with Ken Patera, who became the Intercontinental Champion for much of 1980. But those two guys aren't here in 1981, but Sergeant Slaughter fills that hole and you that of top heel, and he is just an unbelievable worker at that time. And he leaves for a while. Later in 81, he comes back in 1983, and it's almost as if he never left. And obviously, he put in some good work down in Crockett, the final conflict cage match early in 1983, and then shortly after that, he's back in the WWF for the most memorable run of his career, where he's a heel for quite a while and then turns babyface in early 1984. And what I've mentioned in the past was a really kind of a, a fit of good timing. But that Slaughter and Patterson angle here, there's a certain build to this Cobra Clutch challenge, which they imitated in the Crockett territory later in 1981 when he left New York and went down there. So I've already mentioned the matches that are on this show, so we might as well just jump right into it. Before we get to the first match of S.D. Jones taking on the Hangman, I've gone over this in Episode 7, the Joe McHugh read-through at the start of the Allentown shows, at least on some weeks, usually once every three weeks, Joe McHugh would read the names of the Deputy Commissioner of the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission, Dr. George Zaharian, the ringside doctor, or whoever was there, timekeeper, all the referees, that whole bit, and how much I love it. And I've posted a YouTube video of just four Joe McHugh back-to-back-to-back readings. Well, Gary Michael Capetta also did this at the Hamburg tapings. And Capetta was Gorilla Monsoon's guy when Gorilla was promoting the shows in Pennsylvania and New Jersey when he was part of the ownership group of the Capital Wrestling Corporation. Capetta was his guy as the ring announcer at all the house shows, and Monsoon pushed for him to be on one of the syndicated shows. So since Joe McHugh apparently didn't want to go to Hamburg, Capetta had the gig, and he eventually got phased out, mainly because, I don't know if it was that Vince McMahon 
didn't like him or if he was just Gorilla's guy and as Gorilla kind of faded out and sold his shares to Vince Jr. You didn't see Capetta in a ring announcing capacity until 1989 when he was hired in WCW and you see him for many years after that and he's kind of almost kind of synonymous with that era of WCW. But he has his own Joe McHugh style read through on this show. Greetings wrestling fans and welcome to another action-packed card of all-star wrestling promoted by Phil Zacco. These matches are sanctioned and supervised by the State Athletic Commission. J.J. Binns is the commissioner. Chief deputies are Billy Longo and Peter Lash. Timekeeper at the bell, Mike Mittman. The attending physician is Dr. John Woods. The referees assigned by the State Athletic Commission Dick Worley, Gilberto Roman, John Stanley, and I'm your ring announcer for All-Star Wrestling, Gary Michael Capetta. Gotta love the boos there that you could hear at the end. I don't know, maybe it was just the natives were getting a little restless there, and they'd been sitting around for a while at this taping. And when you read through the names of all the hacks in the Athletic Commission, I mean, you know, what the hell? I mean, just, just get to the wrestling. Of course, they didn't realize what they were getting into, with this S.D. Jones hangman match. These are two, I don't want to say name guys for 1981, but neither one of them is a pure jobber, although the hangman would lose most of the time and is generally regarded as, I said that Slaughter was one of Bob Backlund's very best opponents. The hangman is one of Bob Backlund's very worst opponents. That, <laughs> yeah, not a, not, not a good one there. The hangman is billed from Europe, so just Europe. It could be literally anywhere. He could be from Leningrad. He could be from Vienna. He could be from any place that Billy Joel has a song title of. Who knows, really? SD is billed as Philadelphia's favorite son. So I didn't know that they had an election on that. So I guess he probably would have been popular, more popular than Mayor Frank Rizzo at that time. Because there was a transit strike around that time period in early 1981. SEPTA had one of their notorious strikes around the early springtime. And they had a show at the Spectrum during, during that time frame. I think it was a 12-day strike. That the Philadelphia Transit Union is pretty notorious for their walkouts from time to time. S.D. Jones, okay, and I've I've nicknamed the S.D. Jones Memorial Charge for when the jobber or jobber to the stars or whoever runs to the corner and misses and then loses the match shortly thereafter. S.D. in 1981 was something of a hot item, and they were pushing him on television. Now, he didn't win all of his matches on the house shows, but in general, in most of the house shows, he was just kind of a guy who would face guys who were slightly lower than him and would usually pick up victories. He had a very strong win-loss record, just as kind of a sample from cage match, which I know doesn't have all the results factored in. They have him at 66 wins, 38 losses, and 7 draws. So that's a pretty good winning percentage, not something that you would associate with S.D. Jones. And to this point in 1981, in early March, he had had nine matches on television and had won all nine of them. Some of them in tag matches, riding alongside Martel and Gurria, who were the tag team champions. But hey, he's on the winning end. So nice to see there 
from Conrad Ephraim, S.G. Jones's real name. And at some point, I'm going to find that LJN figure that I have of him. It's it's one of the figures that wow they made an St Jones figure they're certainly running out of people but I'm I'm glad I have one because it's a very unique item so let's see what he can do with the hangman he's also being billed as not special delivery although they would call him special delivery Jones but Vince keeps calling him Super D which <laughs> it seems like something you only heard in this time period. So this match here, okay, there's a lot of stalling to start out. And I called this match manure at the end of last week's show in talking about it and previewing what was to come. There's a lot of shimmying by SD. You know, not quite like the full Ollie shuffle or anything like that. But the hangman is confused by this. So he just starts stalling. And they do multiple lockups. And then they just break, lockup, break, lockup, break. And then a finally we get something with a headlock takeover by Jones. And they lay in that for a while. This is not exactly Luthez working the headlock spot here. <laughs> then they exchange punches, which just totally whiff. I mean, you can see on camera, you could drive maybe not a Cadillac through it, but you could probably drive a Volkswagen Bug between where the fist ends and where the other's face and or body is so not not really <laughs> they're not working stiff here hangman didn't do his homework as gorilla monsoon would say as he sends sd's head to the buckle which is no sold but then they're just kind of both standing up sd doesn't go on the attack or anything like that but he does catch the hangman's foot and has him in that position where you would spin a guy and maybe dole out an atomic drop. But you can't do that in 1981 because that was Backlund's finisher not that long ago. And in fact, in 81, he still might have been using the atomic drop as the finisher. He hadn't, I think, incorporated the chicken wing yet. Instead, SD just kind of kicks him in the hamstring and knocks him down, and we end up resetting. Now we get a test of strength offered by the hangman, who just kind of holds his hand up. And this goes on for quite a while there's so much stalling here in this match you wonder why Larry Zabisco was so eager to leave the WWF if if they were going to allow this level of stalling imagine what Larry would have done if he had hung around in 1981 the things the things he could have done with the time allowed he he, he must have been so proud watching this somewhere in Larry land hip toss and a slam by the hangman but then that kind of gets no sold so we end up resetting again a hip toss but sd then picks the ankle but the hangman gets away so now we have another long test of strength offer but the hangman just kind of kicks him in the gut before anything happens there and then locks on the lazy 1980s style armbar where he's just kind of got hand on the shoulder and not not a whole lot happening. But SD does get a arm drag to try and get out of it. But the hangman hangs on. That's why they call him the hangman. Not because he is an executioner of some kind. Also, I'm kind of... There's there's a certain really bad negative connotation about putting an African-American man in the ring with a white guy called the hangman. That does not exactly make me comfortable here watching this match this goes on 
for a while here. And SD, <laughs> the announcers remarked that SD is, is like sweating his ass off. SD sweating profusely. He puts 100% of himself in that match. I left in the little bit there because you, you can't really hear crowd noise in the background because they're pretty much silent during this entire thing because literally nothing is happening here. So SG, SD, or Super D, is sweating his ass off while doing nothing. So I'm wondering, does he have the flu or something? Like, please tell me there is some sort of excuse for this match being what it is. The referee caught the hangman pulling hair, it seems, and said, oh, he's going to force him to break the hold. But then he just never breaks the hold. Like, nothing happens. So even the referee is completely ineffectual and useless. And I'm just so amazed watching this. Like, it, it's not going anywhere. We're, we're basically going in circles here. SD, when he recovers and gets onto his feet, he kind of does a chicken-like dance in the center of the ring. He's a chicken. A chicken. Chickens don't clap. Once he reassumes his human form, SD fights with back with some rights and then closes with a big left. As SD is a southpaw, so that's that's where you get the big left there. Some furious lefts in the corner, and then a beal back out. But uh, then the bell rings, and again a very odd draw here. Had this on the episode of All American that I did several weeks ago with Tony Garea and Iron Mike Sharp, where the bell just sort of rang out of nowhere. It wasn't like a guy was on the verge of pinning the other guy and then the bell rang for the draw, like one of those things, which is ordinarily how you would do it. No, it just kind of rang when it was going to ring. SD moves Dick Worley out of the way. He kind of picks him up and then moves him to the side to get at the hangman. But yes, nothing really happens. This match, and I'm ashamed to say this. I've watched this match, I think, five times this year. Twice for this show. And I know one of the times I was on the ferry from New London, Connecticut to Orient Point, New York. And I'm sitting in the little lounge there and I'm watching SD Jones versus the Hangman at about 8 in the morning on a Friday. And I'm wondering what exactly it is that I'm doing with my life as I'm watching this. But each time I'm kind of getting a little bit more humor over how hilariously bad this is. So I'm kind of, I kind of want to comment on it as 2017 obnoxious internet wrestling fan. Come on, man. They're burying SD Jones. He was undefeated on TV up to this point, and you waste his undefeated streak against the hangman? This is bullshit, man. They're burying SD Jones just because he's black. It'll be something like that. You know, it's... God, I, I, I don't know... What? This is certainly a contender for the worst match in Greetings from Allentown history because it's mostly just squash matches that I have on here. But at, at least SD Jones did a chicken dance. So, um, yeah, at least there's that. Well, I love a rainy night. I love a rainy night. 
Learning. What songs were number one during certain periods of time? And that one, I Love a Rainy Night by Eddie Rabbit, was topping the charts for two weeks at that point in 1981. And I was just kind of like, huh, it's really more of a country artist. It does seem like a silly name, Rabbit. And then I remembered, oh yeah, from the time that I was born until the time I was 16, the mayor of the city that I grew up in was named Rabbit. So... There you have it there. Not really much of an anecdote, but it is something. Also something is the great Yatsu, Yoshiaki Yatsu, taking on Frank Savage in one of his very few TV matches during his very, very early days of his career in the World Wrestling Federation. He started out near the end of 1980, and this looked to be his first match on the weekly television, you would see him more often at MSG or at Prism. So he was not a guy who was necessarily pushed, but he was not necessarily a guy that would go out there and lose or anything like that on a regular basis. And that, I guess, is in part due to the fact that you could push him a little bit or at least make him look like something of a star based on his undeniable amateur credentials as he had won a number of amateur wrestling competitions in the late 1970s and was primed to go to the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow representing Japan, but the U.S.-led boycott of the Moscow Olympics prevented that. And that was something that had to be done. If you understand the politics of the time frame, which I know seems hypocritical coming from an American and given what happened in Iraq in 2003, the Soviet Union invading a sovereign nation of Afghanistan and then hosting the Summer Olympics only seven or eight months later was really kind of a big freaking deal. And a lot of countries joined the United States. And it was a very, very diverse boycott group. Even though France and Great Britain did not join the boycott, and you would have thought that they had because of their, you know, strong allied relationship with the United States, although Great Britain did not uh, participate under their flag necessarily, or at least did not participate in the opening ceremony. But this was a boycott that included China, which you would not think was some sort of ally of the United States, but they had their own problems with the Soviet Union as well. But also, Saudi Arabia... Iran Iran boycotted the 1980 Olympics, but for their own reasons, as they felt that the Soviets were arming rebels. And of course, they're right on the border with Afghanistan, bordering Afghanistan to the west. And Israel was part of the boycott more due to its alliance with the United States. So kind of funny when you see Israel and Saudi Arabia on the same side of an issue. It's kind of like kind of like that weird tag match at 98 No Way Out where Steve Austin and Owen Hart are on the same side only like literally 6 months after the SummerSlam 97 imbroglio or whatever. And yes, I just compared Saudi Arabia and Israel to Steve Austin and Owen Hart. Back to Yatsu here. This is as I said literally the beginning of his career. It's kind of one of those sojourns that someone from Japan would go to in the United States, and they figured, well, we have a relationship with the World Wrestling Federation, so we'll send you there so you can get some 
in ring time. But the early part of his career, he was tagging with Ricky Choshu in Japan, but would get greater fame later in the 80s as he became the first world tag team champions in all Japan pro wrestling in 88 with Jumbo Saruta. And they liked it so much that, you know, they lost it a few times. They won it back four more times. So five-time champion there. Took a break from wrestling, pro wrestling, in the mid-1980s to train for a comeback to potentially live out his Olympic dream at the Seoul Olympics in 1988. But that would not come to be as the International Olympic Committee are real dicks. And there's no other way of putting it. He's training for it, da-da-da. And they banned him from the 1988 Games saying that he was a professional. Now, we know that there's a difference between, say, becoming a professional baseball player or a professional soccer player, you know, football as the rest of the world would call it, versus becoming a professional wrestler versus like an amateur wrestler. I mean, we all know what the difference is there in terms of competitive sport and all that, but the International Olympic Committee just decided that they were going to be jerks about it, and quite frankly, some things never change as you go along. His opponent here is Frank Savage, who's a somewhat versatile enhancement talent who faced off against faces and heels. I mean, you'd usually see, like a Steve Lombardi later on, years later, was a, quote, heel enhancement talent who would face, you know, Tito Santana and all the baby faces. And you kind of divide it up like that. Well, this guy would pretty much face everybody. And his record, and I haven't gone back to this well recently with the cage match records for a guy near the bottom of the ladder. Is he was new to the business as well. He had only started out at the beginning of 1980. His record in 1981 was three wins, 40 losses, and two ties, which is pretty bad by any measure, although not as bad as the 1981 Winnipeg Jets, a NHL team that was so bad that they didn't even have to try and tank to get the first overall pick. There was no process with that franchise. They went nine wins, 57 losses, and 14 ties that year. And they only won one out of their first 33 games that season. So didn't really need to tank it at the end. Didn't need to sit guys out. And they got Dale Howardchuck at the end of the rainbow. And, and there's probably not too many people out there who's like, who the hell is Dale Howardchuck? What, what, who the hell cares about the Winnipeg Jets? Well, Frank Savage did end up going to Japan in the summer of 1981 for a couple of months. And actually picked up a couple of his 1981 wins there. Although most of his matches were just routine losses during their summer tour in New Japan. And he never faced Yatsu over there as Yatsu was in the States for pretty much the rest of the calendar year of 1981. They decide to reenact a Ring of Honor match here, or at least early version, with the handshake to start. And we know that we're going to get some amateur wrestling here to show off Yatsu's skills in that area. And they get an exchange of go-behinds there. Patterson immediately puts over Yatsu's credentials as an amateur wrestler. We should see some uh, very good demonstration of 
amateur wrestling move because that Yatsu is probably the best uh, amateur wrestler to ever come out of Japan. And in 1980, he was supposed to represent Japan in the Olympic, but Japan did uh, boycott the Olympics, so he didn't have a chance to go. But he is, without a doubt, the best amateur wrestler to come out of Japan. So we know that these two guys both started out in 1980, one of them at the beginning of the year, one of them at the end of the year. This is not a particularly exciting match here, again. <laughs> You know, 1981 WWF, like I, I was not kidding, it could be a little dry at times. And there's a lot of awkward pauses in the conversation between Vince and Pat. I don't know if they just weren't feeling it, the product here on this edition of All-Star. That uh, Vince, <laughs> Vince brings up a point about their respective careers about these two guys, and Pat just kind of shuts them down. Actually, I guess maybe Savage and Yatsu uh, began their wrestling, their pro wrestling career at least, uh, at approximately the same time, wouldn't you say? Uh, I'm not sure, Vince. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm just not sure about that. Yeah, that's kind of funny there. You had a side headlock takeover into a leg lock by Yatsu, which looked pretty slick. And on this show, it was like seeing a space-flying tiger drop compared with some of the other stuff we've seen on this show. I, I always wonder about that relationship between New Japan and the WWF, which lasted up into around the summer of 1985 and ended rather abruptly. I mean, the WWF was not really sending their best guys over by that point. And New Japan is getting something here by sending one of their young talents over to the New York Territory to get them experience and all that. I'm not entirely sure what the WWF got out of this other than having Japanese wrestlers in the promotion. And you would see Tatsumi Fujinami working in WWF shows and, you know, a handful of other guys to kind of give... It is the World Wrestling Federation, so to kind of separate it maybe from other territories. Of course, Japanese guys worked in other territories as well, but if you're going to call yourself the World Wrestling Federation, you have to have people from all over the world. So I guess that's all that the WWF would have gotten out of it at that point. Of course, they did have those matches in 1982 for the junior heavyweight title, the the Cobra, Tiger Mask, and all that. So there was some good matches and something of an attraction for the time period, at least in my opinion. But it seemed like that they it seemed like they were always doing favors for Anoki. Like Anoki would come over and win a battle royal in '84. Anoki faces Backland and kind of looks good in doing so even if the match is horrible he gets the belt in like a disputed finish that is not recognized in the United States not not entirely sure what the Vince Sr. WWF and earlier WWWF got out of it but Vince Jr. on commentary here they're kind of discussing the influx of Japanese into North America and we all know that Vince McMahon, he loves his big guys, and that's something that continues to this day. And he's not the owner at this point. That's still a couple of years out. But you can you can kind of tell what Vince's preferences are based on what he says here. It certainly seems as though we're seeing more of them in the World Rustic Federation. I think perhaps the reason for that is that uh, unlike 
other federations, there seems to be more of an emphasis on the heavyweights here, and uh, there are more and more Japanese heavyweights. Forgot to mention earlier, Patterson refers to Yatsu's career and says that he prevailed and won at the Pan Am Games, which I found funny because, uh, Pat, the Pan Am Games, it's, it's right in the name, the Pan Am Games. This was kind of an Olympics that they would hold in the year before Olympics were held then. So before 1980, they would hold it in 1979, and it was for North and South America only. So I feel like it would be very hard for Yatsu from Japan to go to the Pan American Games. But, you know, he did win at the 1978 Asian Games, 1979 Asian Wrestling Championships, 1979 Japanese National Championships. We, we don't have to invent things that could not have possibly happened to go through the guy's credentials. The Pan American Games was something that, in the United States, I don't remember at all, except... My family would get these annual encyclopedias for whatever reason. We got them from around 1976 through around 1986, and we'd have the books, you know, just laying around. I think I have the 1979 book somewhere. And it would go through, like, what had happened in the world that year and kind of, you know, simple articles. I remember looking through that. And the sports section would be huge, on the Pan American Games, like it was this big deal. It's like, I don't remember watching this ever. And it was because it was not an event treated with great seriousness in the United States. It it was not an Olympic level sort of thing, even though you would see a lot of the same athletes here. Now, if you thought that the finish to our opening match with the time limit draw was a little weird and the timing on it was a little strange... This this one takes place about seven minute mark of this match where there's not a whole lot going on. You get a slam by Savage that followed up on a back elbow. He drops an elbow for two and then goes for another slam, and Yatsu counters it into a small package, a la Steamboat at WrestleMania three. And this one did not look particularly great, but it gets the three count anyway. So we're out of here on this one and. Boy, this might be the slowest start to a weekly TV program that I've encountered in 38 episodes. But trust me, business is about to pick up really soon. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Place Nation's JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySimation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. 
on the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed. We bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlacementNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlacementNation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryOfWrestling.com, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlacementNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. I grew up on WWF in an era where the three main managers for most of the time, and yeah, Fuji was there too, but he's kind of a separate deal. It was Heenan... Jimmy Hart, and Slick. But before that, in that era before Hulkamania, you had the three wise men, who I like for all different reasons. Albano is probably the most famous because of his media appearances later on, in terms of Super Mario Brothers and all that other kind of... He's kind of a cartoon character a little bit there, but whatever. My favorite is probably the Grand Wizard simply for the way he dresses and for his his really distinctive voice. I, I love the voice of the Grand Wizard. Also the fact that he called himself the Grand Wizard apparently as a middle finger to all the racists and bigots out there. And then of course the last of the three wise men but certainly not least classy Freddie Blassie who, when you go back to the late 70s and the early 80s and you watch his promos, just the local promos, they're, they're, they, they very rarely would ever disappoint. And on this occasion, they're at ringside, as they were wont to do at the time, and Vince is there with Blassie and his new charge, Killer Khan, who has just arrived on the scene and big things would be happening for him in the coming months with his feud with Andre the Giant that won Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Feud of the Year, which I can accept because it's two big guys going at it and there's nothing wrong with that. 
But the fact that it won match of the year, that I dispute when Pat Patterson versus Sergeant Slaughter in an alley fight, which happened multiple times, but I'm talking about the MSG version. The fact that that happened and it wasn't match of the year, I don't know. But back to this promo here. Grandpa Blassie, and he was older at this point. I think he was pushing 65 around this time in 1981. I can't remember his exact birthday. Well, Grandpa Blassie, he's laying us down to bed. He's tucking us all in. and He's going to tell us a bedtime story about Mongolia. You know, I've got a scoop for you and the rest of these pencil neck geeks. Just a matter of about two and a half, three hours ago, I received a long distance call from Mongolia and I spoke to this gentleman's uncle's interpreter. And he relayed to me, this man is going to be flying back to Mongolia for a couple of weeks, in case you don't happen to see him. He's going back and he's Jeez, being I'm, presented. I'm sure that, I'm sure the fans... Well, you keep quiet, I'm The fans gonna, are really going to be disappointed in that. That's right, they will, because they will be seeing the greatest wrestling attraction in the world today. Killer Khan. I like how Vince interrupts Blassie in the middle of it and kind of knocks him off stride there for a minute. Sometimes Vince would do that, and I'm not sure if he was doing that just to screw with them or to kind of test them out, but Grandpa Blassie, he's not done here. Anyway, getting back to what I was telling you and before I was so rudely interrupted by you. The hair gets in his eyes once in a while, that little hair back here. Anyway, the man is being awarded 100 camels. 100 camels. In case you pencil neck geeks want to know the price of camels, go to your zoo and ask your zookeeper. Anyway. So I got to interrupt him here because I was looking to see how much 100 camels would be worth in 1981. And it seems that the value of it kind of depends whether you're in a place like Dubai or India. It kind of all depends where you are. In Mongolia, you can't really get a lot of information. So whatever. Anyway, back to Freddy. The man's going back. And he's going to be presented with that. And incidentally, another thing. They've restricted the use of his martial arts because it was too brutal and too devastating. But as of now, we can use it. And I guarantee you, his proponents sure won't like that one bit. You want to interpret that, Mr. Blasi? <laughs> if I told you what he said, we no longer would have a TV station. Sure, we couldn't understand what Killer Khan actually said there, but he's still a better promo than both Dynamite Kid and Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Famer Chris Benoit. But I know it, and he knows what he's saying. And those other people out there, the people from Mongolia, they understand what he said, but the rest of those pencil neck geeks are of no interest to me. I like to imagine that the WWF, just from having Killer Khan from a kayfabe perspective, were able to get TV slots in Mongolia as a result. Kind of like how Baltimore Orioles games were being televised in Korea last season in 2016 because they had Hyunsoo Kim, which was, who was one of the biggest stars in the Korean League for the previous decade. So kind of from that perspective, I guess Killer Khan might pay for himself, but I don't know if the TV stations there necessarily would operate, and they were probably working on like a three- or four-week delay. I mean, Boston was two weeks behind. Fred Blasser, you're a world traveler. 
and Killer Khan from Upper Mongolia. How does Upper Mongolia differ from Lower Mongolia? Well, one is a little higher than the other one. <laughs> now, that would be a good place to leave off on this promo, but they keep going. It's, it reminds me very much of a Saturday Night Live skit that starts out really funny, and then you get into that fourth, fifth, sixth, sometimes even seventh, eighth minute of it, and you're just weary and you just are waiting for it to end and you're just going to get it, go up and you're going to grab a snack of some kind. Interestingly enough, March 7th, 1981 is a very interesting day in the history of Saturday Night Live. Bill Murray hosted that night, but that wasn't the real story. The real story was this was the last episode by the failed 8081 Gene Dumanian Regime. I always forget how to pronounce that name. I, it's one of those names that I read in print way more often than I ever actually heard spoken of. That 8081 season was such a disaster, and they only had one more episode left in the season, as it turned out, because of a writer's strike. And for before the next season, everybody got fired except for Joe Piscopo and uh, some youngster by the name of Eddie Murphy. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one just kind of keeps dragging on and on. <laughs> the hairstyle, you mentioned, uh, is there a name for the this little... What not, I call it. What? A what not. A what not. What? That's the cutest thing I've seen. The best one we have is in Special Hairdresser. Genghis Khan! <laughs> That's right. You know that. I don't have to tell you. I've already explained that to you. He's a distant relative of Genghis Khan. How distant? Removed by... Well, it's quite a long ways back. But he is a distant relative of Genghis Khan. Jesus Christ, Vince. The guy is in his 60s. Just let him go to the back and play cards with Skolin, for God's sake. You're leaving him out here, and you're asking him to do improv comedy for like six consecutive minutes with Genghis Khan to work with here. Or Killer Khan. I mean, what the hell do you want him to do? Just a I, kind of a bad job by Vince here. He, he's got to know who he's working with. Blassie has a time limit out there. Just get him out there for maybe two, three minutes. Do your promo, and that's that. You don't think that I'm going to let the greatest attraction in wrestling today go off by himself? The man might never return. Get home sick. In, in Mongolia, do they have one hump or two hump camels? They have both. And the Upper Mongolia and Lower Mongolia. Upper Mongolia, they got two humps. Lower Mongolia, one hump. All right, we thank you very much for your time, Mr. Okay, Blassie. Okay, you're welcome. And good luck with your camels. All right, Vince won me back there with the good luck with your camels line. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this next attraction is Sergeant Slaughter's $5,000 Cobra Clutch Challenge. And here Before I get into who the Black Demon is, I should explain what this $5,000 Cobra Clutch Challenge is all about and how we got to this point here on March 7th. See, earlier in 1981, starting in January, Slaughter and his manager, the Grand Wizard, were offering $5,000 for anyone who could break the Cobra Clutch. And you had this array of 
jobbers, although there's one particular name that's interesting that I could not find the footage, and I was dying to see a very young Hacksaw Jim Duggan try to struggle out of the hold from what would be his tag team partner come 1992, 11 years later. He's the, I couldn't find any footage on him or Mike Smith, but I, there is some out there with Johnny Rods, Jack Carson, and most famously from the week before this show with Rick McGraw, who had put up a bigger struggle than anybody to that point, lasting about two minutes in the hold before passing out and being called a maggot and all that other stuff. So it was gradually building, and all the while, Slaughter was taunting Pat Patterson, who was, of course, on commentary and is nominally retired, he said in his book. And Patterson had a lot of different retirements over the years, but in fact, he wrestled right up through 1987, at least on a part-time basis. So right here, we're going from Rick McGraw, and it seems like a real step back to go to the Black Demon who is actually a wrestler by the name of Don Serrano. And he would wrestle under that name and under the mask. And if you're wondering why he would do a thing like that... I get two paychecks this way. Serrano had a long and distinguished career, jobbing in a number of different locations. And he even gets a reference in Terry Funk's book. I feel like I've brought that book up a lot, but there's a lot of interesting anecdotes on many different people, and he happens to be one of them. And apparently he was setting up a shop in Puerto Rico to run a promotion out of there in opposition to Eddie Graham, whose Florida promotion was running Puerto Rico shows. So Sputnik Monroe offered to go in and rough him up in the ring, but only if he was able to tell him that he was going to do it first. So that happened, and apparently he did not run opposition to Graham, and that was that. That's really all there is for Don Serrano, who should not be confused in any way with former Cleveland Indian superstar Pedro Serrano. Hats for bats. Yeah? What's your handicap? Keep bats warm. Glasses. What? Whoa, amigo, I, uh, you can't just... You're welcome. That scene reminds me of the time in the summer of 95 when I was on my way to the batting cage and my friend Matt, he was the only one who had a driver's license at that time and he had to drive like this Volvo station wagon. So I'm in the back, not buckled in because, you know, what what am I going to do? Strap myself in like a goon in the little seat that's in the back of one of those things. So I have my bat and I have my Pedro Serrano golf club head on it. Well, my friend gets pulled over, and the cop, he's looking at me, and he's like, what the hell is that? And I'm like, you know, it's like hats for bats, keep bats warm. And the cop says, put that thing away before I have to shoot you. And I'm like, oh, okay, officer, whatever. It's not even like I was in like some kind of hardcore neighborhood here. I mean, it was freaking Melrose, Massachusetts, where that happened. So Serrano, the black demon, he... Uh, 
he doesn't want any part of this. And I should point out how these things were set up. It wasn't like the guy would stand there and then Slaughter would put on the halt. They would have to sit in this chair, a Bruno chair, by the way, one of those wood chairs that Bruno got smacked with in 1980, as covered in episode 14. They would have to sit there, and what Slaughter would do is he would, like, rub their shoulders and their neck to kind of, almost like you're tenderizing meat before you're about to grill. Some Something along those lines. Well, the Black Demon apparently didn't want any part of that sort of homoeroticism, or maybe he didn't want to be demasked or whatever and have his identity be found out. So he gets touched and he gets up and then he just kind of waves his arms at Slaughter and takes off for the locker room. So Slaughter now is um, kind of pissed because this guy just kind of left on him and what's he going to do here? And you start hearing from the crowd chants of, we want Pat, we want Pat. And earlier in the taping, you had had the angle with Rick McGraw and you had Slaughter continuing to taunt Pat Patterson who was kind of saying I'm still studying the hold I'm still breaking down the film I just picture Pat Patterson at home like like his his longtime partner Louie like Pat let's go out to the club with him. no no I got I'm breaking down the Cobra clutch here oh you know something like that so Pat has to go over and he has to interview Slaughter, who looked like he was going to leave, then he turned back. And Slaughter starts giving Patterson a little what for, saying that the Black Demon, he's yellow, and he's yellow just like you. And then for good measure, just to be a complete dick, he just slaps Patterson for, for no real reason at all. And this gets Patterson up in arms, and off comes the jacket, and he hops into the ring, and he points to the ring very demonstratively because Pat Patterson, always a guy who appealed to the person in the last row, very theatrical in what he's doing, but not in like a cornball sort of way. He's doing it in the classical professional wrestling way that you should do things. And he's not going to get slapped by by Slaughter and let him get away with it. And the place comes unglued because this is what they've been waiting for. This has been carefully built now for almost two months of television. Very similar to the Bruno and Larry build the year before this. This had been carefully built up to this very moment. So Slaughter goes in and you get the Gomer chance. You can see a big sign behind the ring that says Gomer on there as that was always something that was yelled at Slaughter right up until his face turned in early 1984 to get under his skin. And much like Paul Orndorff, it's in the way you react to that chant that is so instrumental in getting it over. You can't no-sell it. You always have to be just a little bit more outraged than is necessary. So Patterson, he sits down in the chair there, And Slaughter actually teased leaving and just kind of taken off, but Patterson would have none of it. So that he's kind of doing the thing where he he grabs Patterson's neck, and you almost think he's just going to hit him and cheap shot him right then and there. 
but he's kind of being honest from that perspective that he's just tenderizing the meat, which I know is probably a bad choice of words when it comes to Pat Patterson, but there's really no other way I could put it. So Slaughter slowly locks in the Cobra Clutch, and Pat, you know, Patterson was getting really pissed at the stalling that was going on there. But once he gets the hold on, crowd starts going crazy, and Patterson stands up, and his first technique of what he tries to do is the old, well, not the old, because it wouldn't be until years later that you'd see it, but a more casual fan would remember the Bret Hart walking up the turnbuckle and then kicking off it to try and break the hold. And it almost breaks the hold right, you know, almost right after it's applied. He then runs him to the buckle, sending Slaughter back first into the corner turnbuckle, which is something that Rick McGraw tried, but that didn't end up working for him. He then kind of drags him in sort of a hip tossy type deal over, but Slaughter still manages to hang on to the hold. And this is just building drama, building drama. What is going to happen here? How is Patterson going to get out of this? It's just real drama. It's not only was the build to this done well, but the execution of the angle itself is really, really good. So then he runs Slaughter face first to the buckle, kind of ducking down. But again, the Sarge holds on to it. And then Patterson, figuring now that he softened him up a bit, and there's some psychology in play here, which makes this even better. Now that he has him a little bit softened up, he's going to go for the move where he tries to break it with his arms. And as he's getting ever so closer, ever so closer, Slaughter lets go of the hold in a very subtle fashion to the point where you think that Patterson broke the hold and the crowd goes apeshit bananas for this, thinking that Patterson had won the $10,000 because they doubled the prize in order to goad Patterson into this. They had been offering him $10,000 instead of the usual $5,000 for weeks going into this. But Slaughter released the hold there in a weaselly way of saying, well, you didn't break the hold, I let go, which kind of goes against the entire spirit of the whole competition. You're supposed to keep it on until either the guy is put out or the guy breaks the hold and you pay him the money. But Slaughter is taken the other way out and (laughs) he decides to escalate it in very Larry Z fashion by grabbing the Bruno chair and smashing Pat over the head. And Patterson blades... Dick Worley gets tossed out of the ring. A lot of similarities here to what what happened with Bruno and Larry between the blade job, the type of chair, Dick Worley getting thrown out, although he took a hell of a lot better bump this time than he did the last time. But Dick Worley, not exactly good at going through the ropes there. It's, It's like watching Coach from Cheers getting thrown around there, except a much less likable version of it. So now that he's beaten Patterson down again, and he's bleeding, and this was this was a pretty good blade job, and it's on the weekly TV, so you know it's a different time because there's blood on the weekly TV. The Cobra Clutch gets locked in again, and Patterson is really, really struggling and is going to need some help. So who comes out 
from the back. We have the tag team champions, Tony Gurria, Rick Martel, and Dominic DiNucci. And they all start going to work here. And Gurria, much like when he was trying to free the Ultimate Warrior from the casket, as reviewed in episode 12 of Greetings from Allentown, he's not really trying all that hard. He's just sort of grabbing... But you can kind of see that he was half-assing it a bit. Almost as if Gurria was in the john, like, taking a piss. And Martel came and got him to, you know, come out. And Gurria had to, like, rush out there without washing his hands. That's the way Gurria is kind of playing this whole deal. And Patterson, he's he's bleeding all over the place. And they got to get him out of there. So Danucci, being... <laughs> He saw what happened to his pal Bruno with those chairs. So he grabs the chair now, and he starts whacking Slaughter with it, both on the back and over the head. But here's the problem. You can't see him hit him in the head because this is a WWE 24-7 copy of this episode of All-Star Wrestling. So the chair to the head shot is censored out of there. And what do they replace it with? Do they put a big red X on the screen or a big black blot on the screen to just kind of center it out? Do, I, do they tile it out? No. What they do is they insert file footage of the crowd at Allentown cheering in slow motion, which, by the way, makes no sense. I mean, the slow motion thing, I can accept. But you're cutting away, and the crowd is cheering for, I guess, maybe Slaughter getting hit over the head with the chair, but their hero, Patterson, is getting beaten down in the ring and is bleeding profusely. So it's just a really weird kind of cut there. I don't know what decision they made to do that, but thanks a lot, again, Benoit, for, you know, screwing everything up. We can't even have, like, an unedited version of a 1981 chair shot now. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to be harmed be, by seeing Dominic DiNucci hitting Sergeant Slaughter over the head with a chair. I mean, we, we know what's up now. So Slaughter takes a step away and is out on the apron, but he gets in a few more cheap shots from the apron as he's on his way out. It's just so brilliant, and Slaughter is not going to give up the fight easily here. And then eventually he does just walk away, and the crowd is... Uh, The crowd was absolutely banana for this, to use a Pat Patterson expression. It was a Memphis-like angle done that created Memphis-like heat here. And it's always fun to see these angles in the WWF, in these smaller venues when they tape TV there, where the crowd is just out of control going crazy. I know when Piper was getting beat down by Adonis, Morocco, and Orton on the Flower Shop slash Piper's Pit showdown that I reviewed in episode one. The crowd was going absolutely crazy, and that was the Mid-Hudson Civic Center. So it was not a small venue. I think it was the Mid-Hudson Civic Center. I could be wrong on that. I think it might have been the Baltimore Arena, too. But my point still stands that when they do these angles like this, You're going to get the crowd reaction that you want. You're going to feel the emotion when you're watching it, even 36 years 
removed. And this is something that it never seems to get played up enough just how great this angle was. I mentioned it as one of the great seven, I kind of chose the number seven arbitrarily, angles of the 1980s in the WWF. And I put it right there with Bruno and Larry and the Mega Powers split at the end of the decade. It's every bit as good as those between the build and the execution. And Patterson commented on it in his book. I wish Pat Patterson had gone into greater depth with his WWF run during that. But uh, he, he, he did have a kind of a funny anecdote about the whole thing. By the way, technically, Sarge never paid me for breaking the hold. With interest, I think I'm owed quite a bit of money today. Well, I did the math on it. And at $10,000, if he invested it into the Dow Jones Industrials, and let's just say he puts it in an index fund. I don't know if index funds existed in 1981, but for, you know, for argument's sake, let's say that it did. He invests that $10,000 into the index fund on the day of the taping, February 25th, 1981. Today, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average closing as of October 30th, 2017, he would now have $256,571. So yeah, I'd say Slaughter and Wizard really ripped Patterson off here. I mean, this is a... Bobby Heenan ripping off DiBiase kind of deal with the Andre contract thing, making $900,000 and for, for really not much work at all. I also want to mention something from Bob Backlund's book that I didn't see on the history of WWE.com in the results, but Backlund is pretty truthful in his book and doesn't get a whole lot wrong. So I do want to get this take on the Cobra Clutch Challenge. He kind of describes what was going on, said that Rick McGraw put on a good show. But then he goes on to say, this is Backlund, the series was so popular with the fans that we even took it out into some of the smaller venues out on the house show circuit with various challenges, including McGraw, Pedro Morales, tag team champions Tony Guerrero and Rick Martel would put the hold over for Sarge before their matches with him. There was even a card somewhere in Massachusetts where I was scheduled to wrestle Sarge, and I took the Cobra Clutch Challenge and put the hold over for him before his title shot. After all, what better way was there to convince the fans that the Sarge could win the title than to show them that his finishing hold, should he get it on me, would put me out? And yes, those two guys did have a match February 28th, 1981, in Springfield, Mass., which I presume he must be referring to there. Of course, Backlund retained his title, as we all know, but that feels like it's a pretty good gimmick to give the people at the house show a little bit of suspense there when you ordinarily wouldn't be expecting a title change in a place like Springfield, Massachusetts, unless you're watching the Mountie take on Bret Hart for the Intercontinental title. But yes, what an angle this is. I recommend any Sergeant Slaughter versus Pat Patterson match. There's one out there that ended in a double DQ. It's on the network on that April 6, 1981 MSG show, but do seek it out on YouTube. There's a couple of different versions available. The alley fight, it is every bit as good as people say that it is. The ending is really kind of shocking 
in how kind of violent it is for the time and place being the WWF of the time period. You just didn't see that kind of violence in the ring. Slaughter is complete crimson mask. The Grand Wizard trying to save him from himself, it seems. It's just... It's just an all-time classic, and you really just need to go and watch that if you haven't seen it already. We'd like to find out exactly what happened. What did you tell the man? How come he walked out on you? I said this might be his last time of ever wrestling again, and the guy got up, and he left. What's the matter with all these around here? You, they got no guts. You told him it was the last, probably be the last time he stepped in the ring again, and he walked out. That's right. He's, he's yellow, just like you. He's yellow, just like you. Patterson is hot. Unbowed by that display of wanton violence with the chair, Dominic Danucci is back here, and he's teaming with a very sharply dressed Rick McGraw in a blue satin jacket, and they are taking on the Moon Dogs, who are Rex and King, not to be confused with Rex King. And Spot is not there at this point, as he would replace King around May. In April, actually April 6th, Moondog King had his last match, at least that I could find on record at thehistoryofwwe.com, at that MSG show, and you don't see him again. Now, that's interesting because at the very next Allentown taping, which was taped on St. Patrick's Day in 1981, March 17th, and airing April 4th, the Moondogs famously beat... Tony Gurria and Rick Martel for the WWF Tag Team Championships. So King barely even got a chance to have a taste as champion. The show airs on the 4th, his last match is on the 6th, and eventually he gets replaced. Now, Gorilla Monsoon had gone on and said that he had been hit by a car or was injured in a car accident or something to that effect. But Gorilla, as we all know, he he can tell tall tales. I mean, he told everybody that superstar Billy Graham was dead. And then when Graham asked for a retraction of the story by saying, hey, I'm right here, I'm alive, Gorilla refused to do it because it would harm his credibility, is what he said. But this Moondog King, I'm interested to see him here because... You know, we'd never see him again in the WWF. And the reason why is he had an immigration issue between Canada and the United States. You don't think of those two countries where you would necessarily 
have a problem. And he was born in St. John's, Newfoundland. And you know those crazy Newfies. They can do all, all sorts of nutty things, as we've learned from the show How I Met Your Mother. But he was not permitted back in the United States. And it seems under specious circumstances, perhaps, what he claims is that, or claimed, because he passed away in 2005, is that the border thing involved a rival wrestling promoter alerting the authorities to his criminal past, whereas some say it was drug-related. So who knows what it is, but he seems like a very interesting dude as he ran for the House of Commons in Canada a couple of times, one of them on something called the Canadian Extreme Wrestling Party, which is one of those frivolous parties that you don't get too much of in the United States. Yeah, you kind of have some goofy parties that run for president, like way down ballot. But in Europe, where you have a more parliamentary system, where you have proportional representation, you get these weird kind of splinter movements. I remember in Iceland a few years ago, of course, they've had like three elections in the past 18 months, but they had some sort of pirate party that was actually a contender in their elections. So there's a lot of fun in other countries' elections. I wish United States elections could be so fun, but I believe any sort of enjoyment of our electoral process is forbidden by the Constitution. I believe that might be the 28th Amendment that was snuck in somewhere along the line, probably in like 2003, something like that. So they win the tag title shortly after this. And facing Danucci and McGraw, a, a good team, certainly not on the jobber level, but certainly not going to be contenders for anything anytime soon and Dominic gets worked over a little bit early on and and the dummy Rick McGraw he runs into the ring and all he does is distract the referee allowing the two moondogs to work over Dominic in the corner now Dominic now I'm gonna he was a Titans of Wrestling favorite more accurately he was he was a Kelly Nelson favorite on the Titans of Wrestling but Dominic he kind of he's famously you know a friend of Bruno San Martino, and that would get you somewhere in WWF and WWWF before that. But to me, and maybe it's because I have it on the mind because I played part of the song at the beginning of the show, he kind of looks like one of Archie Bunker's bar friends, like from Kelsey's Bar in All in the Family or Archie Bunker's Place, the successor show. He looks like just one of those guys who would hang out in the bar sitting next to Barney Hefner, who, of course, was played by the great Alan Melvin, who more famously was Sam the Butcher on The Brady Bunch, but also, you may not know, was the voice of Megilla Gorilla. So poor Dom, he probably wants to be back at the bar with Archie, and McGraw keeps running in the ring like a moron, and the referee has to turn his back, and this time he gets triple teamed, because Albano joins in from the outside on behalf of his charges. But we finally do get a, well, I'll call it a lukewarm tag to McGraw, and he slams King, who is over that 300-pound mark, so thing you have to remember is McGraw was little, but he was also very much built. How much of that was natural? I'll leave that up for debate. 
then somehow Dominic tags right back in. And this is one of those tag team things that really always makes me laugh is when the guy who ends up making the hot tag then tags back in way too soon and he's back in there 20 seconds later. He didn't allow enough time for the Danucci power meter to refresh back up. You know, just take a few moments on the apron here. But McGraw does get back in there and Rex ends up pinning him with a shoulder breaker at about five minutes here. It was kind of a sudden ending there, but that's all right. I mean, this match did what it was supposed to do. It puts the Moondogs over not a top team by any means, but a couple of guys who have beaten people on television, and now you can set them up for the next match with Gurria and Martel at the next set of tapings which they would win through nefarious means. I mean, they would use the dog bone and hit Gurria in the back of the head and get the pin that way. And they would eventually lose the belts back to Gurria and Martel as Rex and Spot would hold the title into around the midsummer. And the Moondogs, I guess a lot of their best work would have come in Memphis, in other places. But honestly, I'm just interested to see this iteration in WWF with Moondog King. All you talk about excitement. Where in North America can you get a championship match such as Tito Santana and Greg the Hammer Valentine? Action galore! This is the hour of power. A, a disco move. You know, these Samoans got great dispositions until you get them riled up. They're like the Polynesians and the Maoris, the extractions in that South Pacific. And if you get these people riled up, you could have a war in your hands. A lot of science. Excitement in the air. There's a hillbilly. World wrestling. A wide world wrestling. He's putting all those music from the music right into the ring. I need some Tylenol. One of the great joys of doing this show has been to experience different announced crews that I may not have known about in my youth, or at any point, really. You know, we all know Gorilla and Bobby on Challenge. We know Vince and Jesse on Superstars, Vince and Roddy Piper and Randy Savage, and the whole bit from the early 90s. But there's stuff out there like Maple Leaf Wrestling from late 1984, and there's not very much of it on YouTube. There was some of it there about six months ago, but it is not anymore which features the color commentary stylings of one Angelo King Kong Mosca. And after watching that, I would suggest that it was one of the inspirations for me to do a show where I'm looking at old TV, particularly that episode that I reviewed in the ninth show that I did, Maple Leaf Wrestling from October 13th, 1984, where Angelo Mosca is teamed with Jack Reynolds 
calling the action in London, Ontario, which included that Valentine-Santana intercontinental match, which had Valentine winning the title there. And Mosca with, you, you never knew what he was going to say next. He's in the great triumvirate of color guys. And I'm not including Bobby Heenan in this. This is just a greetings from Allentown triumvirate. And yes, Heenan did call the rockers and the barbershop window and all that. But I did a whole tribute episode to him. So you obviously know that I appreciate the brain stylings. But this triumvirate that I'm talking about involves Mosca from episode 9, Jesse Ventura from episodes 15 and 23, when he did Worldwide in 23 with Shivani, and his bitter back and forth with Vince McMahon in episode 15 from around the time that No Holds Barred came out. And then, of course, the American Dream Dusty Rhodes calling WCW Prime from 1996 and just saying whatever was on his mind. But here is Angelo Mosca, the wrestler, who's a very very interesting sort of character here, who I have many more issues with as a wrestler from a couple of different perspectives than as a color commentator. I've mentioned that he was named the worst color commentator by the Wrestling Observer Newsletter for 1984. And yes, he was replaced by Jesse Ventura in January of 1985. So probably an upgrade there. Maybe not the best fit for him, but I enjoyed him and maybe not entirely in an ironic way. Here in 1981, he's being managed by Albano, which seems to be a good pairing. You're going to pair the heels up with one of the three wise men, and Albano seems like a good fit for Mosca. This match was actually taped in January, so you have the hot angle there, then you have the Moondogs match, and then you're going to cut to something from earlier on, because Patterson is all of a sudden back there. So they kind of have to, you know, have explained <laughs> explained that one here. Now, one of my problems is that Mosca is a region trader here, as he is billed from Toronto, when those of us in the know, and if you've ever listened to Angelo Mosca talk, he talks somewhat like me. He is actually from Waltham, Massachusetts. But maybe he moved to Toronto not to play in the CFL and have a Hall of Fame career up there. That, that would be one thing. But if you've ever been to Waltham, Massachusetts, it can be sometimes difficult to get parking in the center of town where all the restaurants are. So maybe he needed to actually leave the country to get a parking space. He's taking on Jose Estrada here, a guy who, of course, would have a lengthy career in that role of an enhancement talent in WWF, probably best known as a conquistador later on by most casual fans. The interesting thing about Mosca in 1981 is, yes, he is a big bad heel here, but in Canada, in Maple Leaf Wrestling, in the Toronto area, he was a beloved babyface. So he's kind of the first iteration of 1997 Bret Hart without playing up any sort of the patriotic angles or anything like that. He is literally a babyface in Canada and a heel in the United States. And his run with the WWF is almost entirely contained within 
the calendar year of 1981. And he's not facing anything other than the top guys in the promotion. He got his shots at Bob Backlund's world title. He got a shot, although technically I guess it was the WWF title since they were still a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. As Bruno was winding down his career, there were some matches with him as well. And then late in 1981, the famous water pitcher angle with Pat Patterson, where Pat was uh, aggrieved at how Mosca was treating the enhancement talent. And Patterson came down to thank the referee for disqualifying Mosca in his match against Victor Mercado, or Victor Mercado, something like that. Anyway... So Mosca gets all pissed off and hits Patterson in the back of the head with a metal water pitcher. So yet another hot angle involving Pat Patterson in 1981. The crowd is extremely weird for this match. You would almost think that they had just seen the Cobra Clutch challenge and were just sort of quiet and cooling down there. But no, it's as I said, this was taped in January. So this is a weird one. They're, they're kind of muted here. But Mosca is not exactly known for his dynamic offense. It's a lot of punch kick, knee, forearm shiver, that sort of thing. There's no Irish whips or anything like that. There's no big back body drop. You're just going to get what you're going to get, which is Mosca just beating up Jose Estrada for a couple of minutes. And he picks up the win with the Argentine backbreaker up in the body vice there. And he keeps him there for a little bit after the submission and then just drops him. And I will put the call out again, even though I've planned out a number of my shows all the way through the end of this calendar year. If any more episodes of Maple Leaf Wrestling from the last quarter or so of 1984 emerge on YouTube with Angelo Mosca on the call, let's just say it's going to get a favored place in the Greetings from Allentown episode queue. for Tom Sawyer came out only about a week before this show aired in 1981 and that song features my favorite Rush lyric and one of my favorite lyrics in all of music though his mind is not for rent to any god or government and that's something you should really keep in mind in your everyday life in terms of Rush lyrics so there you go that does it for this week's show there's no YouTube comment theater because It was me who posted the video, and it was just posted. There's no comments on it yet. So there's really not too much to add other than I kind of got a chuckle on watching it again because when the doctor comes to check on Pat Patterson, it is, of course, Dr. George Saharian. So you always wonder how those conversations went. I should also note that somebody tried to take away the chair during the Cobra Clutch challenge that had been left in the corner of the ring. 
And Dr. Zahorian, again, told the guy, basically, no, no, you got to leave that there. So I guess they must include Dr. Zaharian in on the finishes. But as for next week's show, going to be taking a look at Saturday Night's main event once again. And this is Fox Style, aired February 8th, 1992. So there's going to be no squash matches on next week's program. Instead, it is one that is loaded with big names all over the card. You have Roddy Piper as Intercontinental Champion taking on the Mountie in what I guess is the mandated rematch from the Royal Rumble. Jake the Snake Roberts against Macho Man Randy Savage in what would prove to be the blow-off to that feud. You have Sergeant Slaughter returning again next week, teaming with Hacksaw Jim Duggan to take on the Beverly Brothers. And of course... The highlight of that show, the thing that everybody remembers, Sid Justice teaming with Hulk Hogan as they put their differences from the Royal Rumble aside to take on Ric Flair and The Undertaker. And what star power you have in that match. So do tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Okay, Lassie, you're and welcome. good luck with your camels. <laughs>